0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today is my good friend, Eric Fanning, the president and CEO of the Aerospace Industries Association. He served as the 22nd Secretary of the United States Army, as well as in top jobs uh, across the United States Air Force, Navy, as well as in the office of uh, the Secretary of Defense. Uh, each year, AIA partners with uh, the American Institute for Aeronautics and Astronautics and Ernst & Young and the Ernst & Young Consultancy uh, for an Aerospace and Defense Workforce Study. Uh, and this year's report is titled, How Do You Reshape Today's Workforce and attack, Attract Tomorrow's Talent? Uh, it was shaped with input from more than 30 leading companies in the sector that together employ some 850 thousand Americans. Eric, it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors our command and control coverage, uh, and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. Uh, Eric, uh, thanks so very much again uh, for joining us. We appreciate it. Another uh, great study on the future of the workforce, uh, and, and that's a question that looms large for all uh, employers. Some of the trends uh, in this are you know, a, a lot of very similar uh, trends from last year's uh, report that we've seen over the last 12 months to 18 months uh, as work uh, and the way we work changes. You know, The workforce of the future is actually critically important. The administration is a centerpiece uh, feature of the CHIPS Act, Uh, to build that workforce of the future? From your standpoint, what are the key takeaways from the study?
1: First of all, workforce is the sort of key strategic issue. When I took this job five years ago, the the CEOs on my executive committee made very clear that this is a thing that that keeps them up at night. And and the challenges have just become more acute. Um, Because of COVID, now because of inflation, uh, The perturbations of of these big movements we're going through can take a while, even a generation, to work through the system. Uh, To me, the key takeaways from this year's report uh, are about diversity and attrition. So one good takeaway, one concerning takeaway on diversity. Uh, we've continued to make progress in every category we can measure, both in general and at the executive level. And continuing to do that year over year is a good sign. And, and that is important for a number of reasons, not the least of which is uh, if workforce is a challenge, we want to make sure that we are tapping into the best, all of the best that the country has to offer. And so I think increasing diversity demographics shows progress in doing that. We don't want to leave any talent on the table in the hunt uh, for building workforce. Uh, Attrition has ticked up. Uh, The the two sort of biggest reasons that we see for that are um, uh, better salaries or or opportunities on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, pursuing uh, basically the future of work, more flexibility in where and when one works. And that's hard for a manufacturing industry, obviously. A lot of the jobs are tied to location and to schedule. Uh, so we are I'm, I'm sure that next year's study, we will dig into that a little bit more. Uh, it's not unique to us necessarily. A lot of people are leaving the workforce or looking for something different. Uh, our companies are trying to offer more flexibility, experiment with where they can. But again, we are a manufacturing industry.
0: Um, let me uh, take you uh, to long-term investments and where they're going to get us, right? I mean, obviously, the CHIPS Act has a lot of education, more science investments, so it goes beyond just making, uh, you, know, uh, 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 you know, bolstering the chip-making industry in the United States. This is kind of an across-the-board function. It's been signed into law. From your standpoint, how is this going to be, a f- you know, how long is it going to take before we start to feel the downstream uh, positive effects of this from your standpoint?
1: Well, that was an important act for a number of reasons. Investment is important. Uh, You know, I'm I'm always going to use an opportunity to wave my flag and say it'd be nice for us to get federal budgets uh, before the fiscal year is over. Uh, So investment is important and predictability uh, to that is important as well. There will be immediate benefits to the CHIPS Act and there'll be longer term benefits. You know, I think that uh, for our supply chain and for our national security and and resilience, uh, trying to produce more of those chips in the United States is great, but it takes a while to do that. And we need to be careful and mindful that we map out that transition period so we don't create unintended consequences as we're trying to um, uh, to move that manufacturing to the United States. And and the, the other investments in there, you mentioned STEM education and so forth uh, are important as well because this workforce issue is, there's no single fix to the workforce issue. It's a generational issue and it's an all of country issue. We have to tackle this from, from all different directions. And so those investments uh, are important. We would have liked to have seen as, as a part of that and are still pushing for, uh, a change in the research and development tax amortization, tax credit amortization. As right. you know, this year, it, it snapped back to five years in, instead of one year. So a, a company gets a 20% deduction for a dollar in research and development investment. Whereas in China, they've doubled. So if you invest a dollar over there, they'll give you $2 in tax credit. So I think that's it's interesting as we think about focusing more intently on, on China in many different ways, uh, that they're taking a different strategy and tack on this than we are. Um, that is an important way to incentivize private capital and doing things that support our country and national security. Because again, that's not just research and development in aerospace and defense, it's across the country and many other
0: sectors. Um, how long do you think it's going to take? Uh, first, do you think you have enough support Uh, up on the hill and within the administration to work hard to sort of undo that because, you know, a lot of folks, I mean, I think you wrote about it earlier uh, this year, and I know that each time we've talked over the course of this year, you've mentioned it. Um, How optimistic are you that we can get that fixed? Uh, And when how long do you think it will take, right? I mean, is this something that can happen in the lame duck session, for example?
1: Uh, we're hopeful that it can. We're working on it. I think there is broad support. We've spent a lot of time with a lot of other groups explaining the benefit to this um, uh, for the country to incentivize, again, industry to invest in in research and development. And part of the problem has been finding a vehicle to attach it to. Um, we We think we get it on a vehicle and then, uh, these bills are, are skinnied down and we keep moving on to the next one. And I suspect uh, that this will be a, a key component of the, the end of the year negotiations um, for all the things that are kind of hanging out there. So we're, we're still pushing.
0: You uh, and the Tri-Services Association, NDIA, the National Defense uh, Industrial Association, the Professional Services Council, Aerospace Industries Association met with uh, the two uh, most undersec- important undersecretaries in, in our uh, business, Dr. Bill LaPlante, uh, who uh, leads acquisition and sustainment, and Dr. Heidi Hsu, uh, who leads uh, research and engineering. I know that there you, you guys tend not to discuss uh, the messages that were exchanged uh, either way in the spirit of having sort Sort of a fulsome dialogue, but what is it that you? But occasionally there is sort of a boilerplate top line thing. I mean, are, are you able to discuss a little bit about some of the things you guys discussed that were on the agenda? We, um, you know, industry and government meet in a number
1: of different ways. That that's one way. Uh, the associations are doing things on their own. We do things collectively, very effectively. The the individual companies uh, are meeting with their customers. That type of interaction in all of its different forms is, is important. You know, Government industry, it's, it is a critical partnership. It's, why it's, it's the main reason we have the best military in the world and, and everybody wants our hardware and we're so effective on uh, the national security side. And so the, the more we can interact um, and understand each other's challenges and figure out how to get around them um, because these are big problems we're working on, the better. I think in all of those settings, the same issues pop pop up um, these days. It's inflation, supply chain, and workforce. And in, in right. many ways, those touch on each other. They overlap in some ways. They're the same thing. Inflation, for example, for for aerospace and defense, when you when you peel back on inflation, you get back to workforce. Um, right. And so those issues are uh, with with Ukraine and how to work better together um, to answer the needs in Ukraine and learn from this experience going forward are, are the main topics I think uh, that come up in any, in any setting when, when industry and government meet.
0: Um, Let me take you uh, to uh, both on uh, the supply chain and surging production side. We talked to Gabe Camarillo, uh, one of your old friends, who's the undersecretary of the army. And he's like, look, and and he made the case that we are moving. We're trying not to do it with new contracts, build it on existing contracts. And yet there are some, especially in industry, who say we're moving too slowly. Um, Let me start with the inflation question. Um, chief executives have told me, you know, some of them have said that, hey, we've gone to the government in order to redress our increasing costs, whereas others say, you know, we, we, we don't, we haven't had to redress. From your standpoint, how much cost are we talking about? And at what point do we need something that goes beyond sort of ad hoc contract by contract companies going to the department, uh, right? I mean, these are long-term contracts. As Mike McCord has said, it, it attenuates the impact. On the other hand, there is an impact, and everybody is eating that impact right now.
1: Well, it's you know there's not one number um, that you can apply uh, to inflation writ large. It it is a very complex and layered. Uh, issue and impact. And it starts with the fact that very few of us have had to navigate inflation before. It's, It's been so low for so long that government leaders, industry leaders, um, many of them are dealing with this for the first time and discovering its impact in many different ways. number of things we're pursuing to try and get at this inflation problem. One, of course, is new language in the NDAA to give more flexibility to DOD to to renegotiate contracts where that's the solution. But uh, contractor workforce rates, labor rates is is another issue. Uh, We may be increasing, the government may be increasing the pay raise for uniformed military and for civil servants, Um, Both of which already are greater than a lot of contracts allow. Uh, And so that's one of the problems that the defense side and our shared industrial base is facing is they can't pay more for some of these workers who can go someplace else uh, for increased pay. So that's an issue we need to get at as well. What can we do to the contract labor uh, rates in order to account for inflation. When when someone says, you know, when the Department of Defense says that we're somewhat insulated from it because we have these long lead contracts, that that just means the risk has been moved someplace else Because because inflation is now and it's real and it's impacting someone today. And it tends to be in particular, those smaller companies that don't have the direct contracts with the Department of Defense. And so as in many cases, we rely for the, the benefits and the effect to flow down through the defense industrial base and the supply chain. But th- to those people who who point to long-term contracts, um, the flip side of that is that just means the risk is in someplace else in the system than with them. And that's generally the suppliers. And we worry about that for a number of reasons. If If a supplier can't change rates um, it may drive them out of the defense side of the business. And, and this can show up in lots of different, interesting ways. One um, one company CEO said that her suppliers are willing to take the penalty by not giving to her because of inflation. They can put it outside in the non-defense side and, and mark it up to a degree where they make more than the penalty that they're paying uh, in order not to deliver on her contract.
0: On the uh, delivery side, is the government moving as quickly as it should be moving um to be, to start to you know issue contracts to replenish depleted weapon stocks because we've seen time and time again sort of um you know maybe that the is the system moving as quickly as it should let me put it that way uh, Well,
1: let me ease into the answer by saying this is not an easy, this is a very complex problem. And so I want to give the the government side credit for that. We would like to see things moving faster um, and new contracts being let. There are certain things that can be done with existing contracts, but I, I think you've got to factor in a couple of things. First of all, inflation. And second of all, Uh, This is always a challenge in how the department budgets and buys, and Congress is involved in this as well. And that's, I think, the the realization, and we've learned this before, we're learning it now, that the capacity of the industrial base is important too. It's not just the capacity of what the department owns, but the ability for the department to surge. That requires industry to be in a place to surge. And if you're under-investing in in, in lines, munitions, etc., um, what you're doing is undercutting the capacity of industry to surge when you need it. Those investments are hard to make. Um, it's easy, Ash Carter, uh, called this granularity. It's easy to take your munitions by from 80% to 60% as a bill payer in the budget. You try and take something big out of the budget, it gets put back in because you don't have that same granularity. So that's a part of what industry and government are, are thinking through together. Where do these investments need to be placed, not just to replenish um, what our own stocks to continue supplying to Ukraine, but also thinking about Taiwan, but in the future, what investments does the department need to make uh, uh, in order to make sure that surge capacity is there? I think what another way to put it is we're moving beyond just-in-time um, stockpiling. Uh, nobody really likes uh, stockpiles. Um, But that is a sign that you're investing in some industrial capacity that you may need to tap into very quickly.
0: Um, Speaking of investment, um, you mentioned something that is a little bit of a uh, hot button issue. Um, The defense industry over the course of more than a decade uh, has resorted to share buybacks, which have become um, kind of a very, very key feature, uh, ensures that the stock is in demand, a lot of dividends thrown off. Uh, on the other hand, some critics um, and Byron Callen and I uh, of Capital uh, Alpha Partners and I, when he joins us for our week ahead, we end up talking about that. We talk about it on our business podcast as well uh, with Ron Epstein, uh, Richard Abalafi and Sash Tusa about buybacks being a relatively unimaginative uh, maneuver. Uh, to keep your share price high and investors happy, while on the other hand, not devoting as much pot- potentially investment internally on people, on uh, facilities, and 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 the like, um, you know, and and at a time like this, there were folks who say, hey, you know, as as opposed to the industry always looking at the government for what they want to do, they they could be somewhat more proactive, but they're reluctant to to put that out out. And I can understand it from a risk perspective; they might not be. From from your perspective. What's the right balance here in terms of satisfying, on the one hand, uh, investors, on the other hand, being cognizant that your uh, you know, customer might not necessarily be as happy with that approach?
1: Well, I think uh, stock buybacks are one of many tools that the companies use um, when they're thinking about how to allocate their capital. And what's important to me is these are publicly traded companies. They have investors and it's in all of our interests that investors are attracted to these companies and invest in them. Uh, not something that I think I understood as well when I was in government as I do now working with industry. These, these are not nationalized companies, which is good. Uh, it's I think why, why they're so successful at what they do. And that requires private investment and private capital. And they leverage that to deliver for the customer. And so I think that's an important thing to keep in mind that that um, these CEOs have a fiduciary responsibility uh, to return investment to, to the investors.
0: Eric, I want to take you uh, to the outlook for uh, defense spending, on which you know everything pretty much uh, rests. Uh, we've got a great strategy. There are concerns that we're actually underinvesting in it now. Uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has said that if the GOP takes uh, uh, control, as widely expected now in November of both houses, that neither Ukraine nor the Pentagon would get a blank check, um, that debt is an important issue. Some have observed, including on our Washington Roundtable, that the GOP tends to focus on debt. As an issue, usually when there's a Republican, uh, there's a Democrat in the White House. Uh, Putting putting that aside, there was a bipartisan consensus. Whereas now there is concern that not only might there be less money for defense, but then actually that you might end up in a budget control act situation. You know, you're an old fashioned guy who expects to see a budget, and and when you were up on the hill, worked for a budget on time, and yet had to live through uh, the BCA. What's what's your estimate on the outlook for defense spending? And do you think that it could be as crazy a process and an outcome as we had with the BCA? Is that sort of an unlikely scenario from your standpoint or one that we need to start considering now?
1: Well, I don't think anybody wants to go back to the BCA construct. I really hope we don't see that. Um, you know, again, that was that was something that was supposed to be so gruesome that we would never do it, and we, we did. So hopefully we haven't forgotten that lesson. I think when I hear Leader McCarthy talk about blank checks, I also hear him talk about oversight, um, which is an important part of this. And so I think that's a part of what he means by that is is Congress needs to have a good understanding of 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 where this money is going, that we are dedicating to Ukraine, but I see still strong bipartisan bicameral support for defense spending. Um, for thinking of this as an investment, this is an investment in our nation's security. And as we think more carefully about China, you know, the national security strategy and the national defense strategy, which hopefully comes out any moment, literally now, um, and you and you track it from Obama to Trump to Biden kind of the same trajectory that gets more and more focused more and more intently on, uh, Indo-Pacific. Uh, then you see what's happening in, in Ukraine. Uh, you know, you know, you can't just focus on one thing at a time necessarily. And then the lessons we're learning about the importance of investing in the industrial base as an organic capability for, for our nation's security. Uh, I think that the need for investment, uh, and the support for that is is growing. Uh, you know, we will we'll have to see what happens in the election and how that shakes out. There are certainly people who want to cut defense spending for a number of different reasons, but I don't see that getting the uh, sort of critical momentum uh, that it might need uh, to go against that broad support for additional investment in our in our nation's security.
0: Uh, And I should I should point out right there are Democratic voices who also uh, have called for uh, less uh, defense spending as well, and it it is that sort of bipartisan middle uh, that's allowed us to get uh, to where we've needed to be on uh, on on spending. Um, Let me ask if I I could say
1: that that bipartisan middle bases its analysis on on strategy and analysis. Um, When you just make it a numbers game, it's not as compelling of an argument because we know threats. Are real. We, we, I mean, Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, we see China learning from that and seeming to perhaps accelerate uh, some of its timelines. And so these these are these are real existing threats.
0: Um, uh, speaking of uh, getting more for your money, uh, you are on the P B B E Commission, uh, the Program uh, Budgeting and Execution commi- uh, Commission to change potentially, I mean, that our, that our system actually gets us to the wrong place, right, from a fundamental standpoint. And it's a, uh, a drive to get under Bob Hale's uh, leadership as uh, chairman. Uh, you're one of the commissioners. Where are you guys in this process? Are there consensus views that are forming about where we have to do to do a better job uh, on how we go about in the fundamental business of budgeting, which actually drives a lot of wasteful and actually somewhat nonsensical practices that, you know, at the end, we get less for our money than we should, in part because of the process we have uh, to program, budget, and execute.
1: You know, I think um, Bob Hale, our chair, uh, Ellen Lord, our vice chair, it's an amazing set of commissioners when you think about it. This group of people has been a, a part of this process from all directions. Uh, uh, lots of Hill experience, both authorizers and appropriators, lots of building experience. Um, I joke that many of us have been the victim of the PBB process, uh, but we've all been uh, been a part of it. And there's 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 some. That's not that's not
0: fully a joke, by the way, (laughs) Eric.
1: It it it's uh, you know there's a reason to have a process. It forces everyone to think through the plan and 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 budget for the future for the tail of whatever it is they're buying. It forces. it tries to force transparency. There's no question this commission wouldn't exist if we weren't in a problem. And it's not um, perhaps that it gets us to the wrong place. I think a number of the of our appointers, I was appointed by Chairman Smith, um, believe that it's not getting us to where we need to go fast enough that that when we when we look at the high end fight um, and how technology iterates faster and faster and faster that we need a process that somehow accounts for that we have um, my only other experience with the commission was on the WMD commission as a staffer in 2008 Uh, and I will tell you this commission meets a lot more than I recall us meeting uh, on that commission we have we have heard from a number of people inside and outside of government from the hill uh, and we've met a number of times as commissioners and um, you know, this is this the, the due date for this report is 2024 we all want to get things um, to the hill sooner than that, and I think there are some areas that we're starting to spend more time talking about. Uh, but right now, you know we're we're we've we've had a intense information gathering phase and now we're starting to, to talk about what we've learned and where we think recommendations can actually make a, a difference.
0: Um, let me uh, quickly uh, take you to uh, export controls. Um, there are some concerns from our allies and partners, right? I mean, putting aside the, the, the uh, squabble between uh, the United States and Saudi Arabia and, you know, talk about arms export bans. I mean, obviously, it's a very important market for American industry. But more broadly, one of the things that you uh, hear, and I, I did hear from uh, some folks uh, when we were at Farnborough, was hey um, this system is not moving as quickly enough for our allies and partners It's um, just kind of an update. I mean do you do you see any any change and if anything, what's sort of the positive advice or constructive advice you would have for the administration as it tries to be careful about the technology that the United States exports uh, while on the other hand, you know, not doing things that actually uh, impede our relationships with allies and partners, some of whom are very concerned with the "buy American language, for example, that's been coming out of the administration?
1: I I think there are three elements to this. Uh, One is policy, uh, and that is making sure that, you know, we're balancing the economic development of exports with the national security needs about not exporting the right things. That is a constant dialogue. uh, And in some places, it's very complicated and complex. So that's policy. The second part is process. Uh, That continues to be a problem. I think uh, inside and outside of government, there would be agreement on that. We need to drive to the right answers. And and that's yes or no. It's not we're we're not saying every time the right answer is yes. But we should drive to those answers as quickly as we can. Uh, And sometimes it takes time. Um, but not needless delays, because as you said, we don't want to upset our allies and partners in this process. And if we we just drag along uh, to a no, or even worse, drag along to no answer, which is effectively a no, uh, we're just needlessly um, upsetting those allies and partners. The third element of this, though, is we have to do this with our allies and partners, uh, because Oftentimes, if we say no on something, there's someplace else to buy it. And right. most customers want what the United States creates, or at least wants what the West creates. And so if they're driven to buy it from Russia or uh, some other country, they're not getting uh, the product or servicing that they would get from the United States. So we need to make these decisions uh, with our allies and partners uh, so that we are collectively not just moving purchases from from one country to another in the Western alliance, um, but deciding these things collectively. So it has more impact if we decide there's some technology we don't want to transfer.
0: I'm glad that you mentioned that there are alternatives on the market because every once in a while you, you meet American leadership whose sense is, well, where are they going to go? And it's like, well, they could go in a lot of other directions than, than us if we say no. And it's always better for us to be involved in it than us not to be involved uh, a, in it.
1: It's a frustrating process on either side. It drove me crazy in, when I was in the Pentagon. It, for, and in part for that reason, you know, it's two parts. The, the process is so, is so opaque that I, I think of it as a, as a whole bunch of pocket vetoes. They're just, they're, there are desks all over government where people can just not move the paperwork. Um, the process needs to drive to resolution and answer, whatever that answer is. But as you said, I think there are lots of people who say, if we don't sell this to country X, they won't have that capability. And it's almost never true. Uh, They'll get it from some other place. Uh, And that, um, you know, it's going to be a a less advanced technology almost for sure. But uh, we lose some of the controls of being a part of the partnership uh, if it's American made.
0: As we saw with Chinese unmanned aircraft, right? Uh, we weren't exporting American capabilities in the form of the Reaper and, uh, you know, countries went and bought Chinese systems with back and problematic uh, stuff as a consequence. There is a uh, debate ongoing uh, about uh, certification of the 737 uh, MAX jetliner. Uh, Boeing's suggesting that uh, the certification, you know, legislation calls for the, the jet in the wake of two crashes that killed 346 uh, to be done by the end of the year, and the company has suggested that that not might not be the case. You can't talk about anything company uh, specific, but for many, uh, the debate that follows this is, you know goes sort of to the heart of the commercial aircraft certification, um, the confidence the world has in in the u s uh, commercial aircraft certification process that was shaken uh, because of this episode. More broadly, where's the right place for us to end up as an industry, Eric, uh, given, uh, you know, how how important American commercial aviation products are worldwide?
1: Well, I, I will say that, um, you know, Boeing and the FAA are working through this, and I know that they are both first and foremost focused on safety, uh, and that will drive the outcome of this process. To the larger question, Uh, We have to think about uh, how we resource the FAA, how we help it build the workforce it needs, because the certification demands are just going to increase as there are more new entrants into the civil airspace. Uh, You know, there are all sorts of proposals for how we're going to move things off of roads and put it into the air. And so we need to make sure that the FAA has what it needs Um, To ramp up to scale its certification process and still, which it will, we will always put safety first, um, uh, have that be the driving focus, but allow industry to deliver this new technology to the public.
0: Uh, let me ask you one last question. You, you worked very closely with uh, Dr. Carter throughout his entire uh, tenure at the Pentagon, whether he was acquisition chief or the deputy uh, secretary, uh, and then again when he was uh, defense secretary. Uh, an extraordinary man, an extraordinary uh, extraordinary life, and 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 tragically cut uh, very very short. But his you know folks focus on some of the things he did as defense secretary, as opposed to the totality of of what was just an extraordinary. Contribution to American national security. Uh, you work closely with him. You were his first chief of staff when he became defense secretary. How do you remember Ash, uh, and and what do you what would you like the audience to know about him that maybe they don't?
1: I guess what I would say, everything that I hear and I'm reading um, since this uh, really sudden and sad passing Monday is really on his time as in the Obama administration. You know, it's, this, he, they talk about him being an undersecretary, deputy secretary, secretary, but I think a lot of people forget he was an assistant secretary too in the Clinton years. And I think when the book's written on Ash Carter, that that will be um, a main focus, if not the main focus. And that's the cooperative threat reduction work, the, the non-Lugar work that he did coming out of the, the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, with Bill Perry as deputy secretary and secretary of defense. Ash did that all in his thirties. You know, the, the driving um, our initiatives to secure nuclear weapons to secure nuclear material and to make sure that nuclear scientists were um otherwise occupied and engaged so they weren't snapped up by uh by enemy countries uh that were up to no good can can you imagine what it would be like now the russia ukraine situation if other countries in that region uh, like belarus had nuclear weapons that work was critical and very successful historically, I think, when we look back on it. And again, he was in charge of that as, a, as an assistant secretary of defense in his 30s. Um, so his, his career spans decades. Uh, and I think we'll still be learning and understanding his contributions for, for decades to come, not just in, in the policy and the initiatives, but in the, the people that he um, mentored and grew and developed and trained who will continue to contribute for years to come.
0: Eric, thanks so very much. Uh, absolute pleasure always having you on the program. Thanks so much for making so much time for us and look for, already looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Vago.